Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Dyer and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, January 12th. What a busy 12 days it's been and no doubt it's a sign of our year that is ahead of us, Colorado. Let's get right to introducing our panel. We have Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward. Eric Sonderman, columnist for Colorado Politics and the Colorado Springs and Denver Gazettes. Alton Dillard, principal consultant at the Dillard Group and former Denver election spokesperson. And we have Sage Nauman as well, a conservative comment commentator, columnist and strategist and principal at Anthem Communications. The 2024 Colorado legislative session is underway now. And in these first few days, lawmakers are saying, let's work together as they unveil priority bills, Patty. Well, on the first day, on Wednesday, they couldn't actually work together for the first 39 minutes because of protests in the gallery. It was quieter on Thursday so far. You know, we're taping this right as Governor Polis finishes his State of the State speech, which was very uplifting. He quoted Spock. He imitated Yoda. We always like those. He talked about wanting to try out for the Colorado Rockies. And making that team a winner could be the biggest challenge. I'd rather he focus on the state of Colorado. He was talking about the environment. He was talking about education. He was talking about the budget. Uh, he was talking about housing and affordability, which are going to be huge issues this year. But in general, everyone in the auditorium in the house was listening to him, behaved. There was clapping. There was cheering. Let's hope the civility can continue at least for the first week. I hope so. Eric. Well, as Patty described, uh, the State of the State speech, as we're taping, that was day two of the session. Day one uh, was on Wednesday uh, with the speeches from the Speaker, the President of the Senate, and the two minority leaders. And that was not quite as smooth. I mean, all the four speeches were certainly appropriate and, and on message and all the rest, but uh, the whole thing started with a uh, disruption in the house with uh, the same thing we saw during the special session back in November, uh, Palestinians or Palestinian allies, advocates um, interrupting the proceedings of the house. And then you have the ongoing snark fest of Elizabeth Epps, who was not present on Wednesday, but was trolling the whole thing and trolling Julie McCluskey on social media from home, but didn't bother uh, apparently per news reports to show up. The word of the day on Wednesday was civility. All the leaders were using civility. I expected Kumbaya to be playing in the background. Um, and that's certainly a worthy goal, but uh, it's certainly a, an uh, antithesis of what we saw during the previous session. I think there are two stories of this session. One's going to be the substantive legislation that comes out of it. The second is really going to be the tone. I mean, when you lose two legislators, as we did at the end of the last session, who just both freshman legislators who after 12 months drew up their hands and said, this is not what I signed up for, uh, and I do not need to be a part of this for my own mental health, there's a warning sign there, and let's see if it gets taken to heart beyond just opening remarks. Mm -hmm. oh. Well, a couple things. Uh, the affordable housing thing is definitely going to be a key issue. And it's always going to be a matter of just seeing what role government takes in bringing about that end. Also, both caucuses are talking about how they're going to tackle crime. So, of course, you know, the Republicans will say, let's lock everyone up and throw away the key. And the Democrats will have blue ribbon panels to discuss the root causes of criminality. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. And then the one I'm really keeping an eye on is the whole construction defects 
conversation. Because remember, that was supposed to be the big cure-all. But that also speaks to how easy it is once something is passed for people to find the loopholes and the cracks to get around certain pieces of legislation. Because you remember then, it was the builders saying, hey, every time we build condos, we're subject to class action style litigation. And so they come up with a bill that fixes that. But now the insurance companies, now they're pushing back saying, okay, but we're not going to help insure you builders if you build condos. And Denver's condo stock as a fairly recent consumer seems to be 40 and 50 years old for the most part. So that's one of the things I'll be definitely keeping an eye on. And the civility piece, um, I don't see it happening, to be 100% honest. Mm -hmm. Okay. What are you looking for into this session, Sage? I, I'm also really looking at housing policy. That was a really, really big debate we had last session. I think that Democrats, Governor Polis, want a second bite at that apple to try to make some progress. Um, but it can really kind of go either way. We've seen some big changes, too, on committees, especially in the Senate. These committees were basically the backstop preventing a lot of progressive policy on housing from actually becoming law. Things like, like rent control, right of first refusal, tenant protections, things like that. Well, because they've modified those committees in a leadership agreement, we could see a lot of those bills actually become law. And a lot of those bills actually threaten to possibly increase the price of housing. So I think you're going to have some competing interests there with a lot of folks saying, let's increase supply as much as possible. Let's free up the market as much as possible. And the other side saying, no, no, we need to give tenants more protections. We need to make sure that they can't be evicted as easily, things like that, which inevitably just add more regulation. Um, and yeah, going back to the civility piece, I think that it's going to be fascinating to watch how leadership handles this. They have to be very, very careful, especially Speaker McCluskey in the House. I mean, these are these are delicate situations. It's going to come down to leadership to maintain the decorum, to maintain those uh, both those bodies actually functioning properly, and it's going to they're going to have their hands full. Yeah, they will. Okay, uh, who would have predicted that this year? All three of Colorado's Republican-held U.S. House districts would be open. Um, so first we had Ken Buck, right? He announced that he was not running for a fifth term in the fourth congressional district. Then Lauren Boebert, who represents the third congressional district, said she's leaving and moving to run in the fourth. And then Eric, last week, Congressman Doug Lamborn, last Friday, said he won't seek a tenth term <coughs> in the fifth district. Woof. Well, we're taping this on Thursday, so I'm... Uh, Wondering who's going to announce a change. Don't say that. Tomorrow on Friday, we've already accounted for all three Republican members of Congress from Colorado, which is all there is. So I guess there are uh, no more announcements uh, forthcoming. No, this was a complete shocker. It's the subject of my column coming uh, this weekend. I mean, the, the, the element of surprise, uh, the Buck thing really wasn't a surprise. Uh, the Lamborn thing, I think we were talking before the taping that, you know, he's been a relatively inconsequential, low-key kind of congressperson. I'm not sure his departure is going to uh, create that many headlines, although the contest certainly will. Uh, and then the Boebert thing is a complete stunner. Anyone who told you, tells you that they saw that one coming is lying because no one uh, saw that one coming. Uh, this is going to be the headline story of this political year, even though it will all be resolved between now and the primary at the end of June is what happens in these districts. Boebert, I think it was born out of desperation. Let's be clear about that. Her move was born out of desperation. It could work. I don't think she could beat any of these candidates, Mike Lynch, Jerry Sonnenberg, Deborah Flora, any of them one-on-one. -on -one. But if she gets them one-on-three or one-on-four where you could win an election with a very small percentage of the vote, 
that is possible. Now you got the whole Dave Williams saga, which is so unseemly. The guy just desperately needs a paycheck um, going on in Colorado Springs. He should be stepping aside at a bare minimum as state party chair if he wants to pursue this. And then, you know, we have multiple candidates jumping into the race. I still think it's probably Jeff Hurd's to lose, and Adam Frisch was clearly a big loser. If Hurd gets the nomination, he'll be the congressperson. Um, but it's going to be a wild ride in District 3, District 4, and District 5. Mm -hmm. You're giggling over there. Yeah, I am giggling because my last time on, we were talking about how spicy the 3rd Congressional District was going to be. That's Who old knew? news. That's old news. It's like, <laughs> so we've definitely moved on to 4 and 5. And, um, yeah, just everything from the pure carpetbagging move that Bobert's making and Dave, and I'm sorry, this is a person who sued to have this on the ballot, so I'm calling him Dave, let's go Brandon Williams, so everybody doesn't forget that this person sued to have that be his nickname on the official ballot. And so, again, it speaks to today's A, political environment, B, it speaks to the ongoing state of the GOP, I am really missing the Hank Brown, Wayne Allard, Norma Anderson kind of days when it came to politics. And so this is going to be a popcorn alert on the highest level between now and that primary. Mm -hmm. All right, Sage. So when I, I kind of relate everything to uh, this little analogy I like to use, which is when you smelt metal, you, you melt it down, the slag rises to the top. And the Colorado GOP is in complete meltdown, and the slag has risen to the top. In the third CD, you have Lauren Ron Hanks, the 1989 Xerox World Champion sharpshooter. Uh, no one can, can fire at uh, you know, uh, printers as well as he can. And then you have Dave Williams, who is the captain of the SS GOP Titanic here in Colorado, pushing us further and further into irrelevancy. Um, yeah, these races are going to be fascinating. Uh, there's going to be, ton I mean, there's already tons of commentary online about it. Uh, I think my opinion is pretty clear on some of these candidates. But what I'm more interested in is kind of what Eric was talking about. When you spread out the vote, you have many of these candidates, anyone could win. You could really have people win this by a few percent and only win it with 20 percent of the, the, the total vote in the primary. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see, do Democrats try what they tried last election? Do they put money behind who are the weakest candidates? Uh, I think in CD3, you put money behind Ron Hanks, all of a sudden that race becomes competitive again. You look at El Paso County, no county flipped more from Trump in 2016 to 2020 than El Paso County. Not just in Colorado, nationwide. It was the biggest switch over to Joe Biden, uh, over to Democrats from Hillary to Joe Biden. Um, you know, can you make that race competitive with someone like Dave Williams? I don't know, but the question is, will Democrats try again? And that's something that I'm paying attention to. Interesting. Patty. Oh, it's so hard to imagine Democrats putting money to Dave Williams or Ron Hanks, even in the most cynical possible race. <laughs> but it could happen. Uh, you know, we, the only people who have worse timing than we had when we did our end of the year show <laughs> is Lauren Boebert, who instead could have run for the fifth if she had any idea what was going to happen in, with uh, Doug Lanborn. It speaks to, and in the fourth, it's become an issue. People are talking about term limits. Will you willingly say you'll be limited in term? Look at the eagerness in the fifth for people who want to run now, with Doug Lanborn saying, I'm not going to do the tenth, go for it, uh, another term. You've got Wayne Williams, you've got really interesting people who want to continue being public servants. So I think we'll have 
a, probably a good outcome with someone who I might not agree with them politically, but they will be upstanding public servants, which you can't say for Dave Williams. So we have to hope the vote isn't split that way. In the fourth, I was uh, arguing with George last week, uh, saying, I don't think Boebert's going to take it. And after the events of this past week, I think not only will people be concerned about carpetbagging, but some people might be retro, retro enough to say, maybe she needs to take care of her children who are on the other side of the state rather than have Lauren Boebert run in the fourth. You're talking about the fight she had with her the husband. The fight with her husband. She has four kids, 18 and under, and a grandchild and a hus uh, ex-husband who appears to have some major alcohol issues. Mm -hmm. So maybe she needs to take care of her home. Do you think that'll affect her chances in the fourth? Do you guys? I don't know. I, I, the name recognition I, still wins, huh? As I opine in my column that's coming up, I, mean, I think Lauren Boebert is someone who's not only in political crisis, but probably in personal crisis mm -hmm. as well. And, you know, Patty, I think that's the point uh, Patty is making. But if this becomes a very splintered field, mm -hmm. can she win? Uh, who's going to be the first one to get to 30%? I don't think she can get to 50%, but she's the first one to 30. So, mm -hmm. yes, she could win that. And I think that was her calculus. Yeah, and like you all were talking about on the last show, you know, again, that's why there's some people who advocate for uh, ranked choice voting. This thing where you have people winning offices with 27 28, 29 percent of vote and winning elections, I just still think that's problematic. Okay. All right. Before those uh, congressional primaries in June, we have the presidential primary on Super Tuesday, March the 5th, and in early February, the Supreme Court will hear arguments as to whether Donald Trump should or should not be included in our Colorado primary. The high court said yes to Trump's appeal of the Colorado Supreme Court decision um, from last month. So, Alton, I'm going to start with you because you've worked in many, many, many elections. Mm -hmm. And to hear that we're, you know, I don't know how many weeks out from March the 5th it is, but this is so down to the wire. The Supreme Court's not going to even take up this case the first week of February. Uh, his name is on the ballot. Yeah, name but. is yeah, his name is on the ballot, and like I always like to say, elections do have consequences. So it's very it's going to be very interesting to see what happens at the federal Supreme Court level, and see what happens as far as if they do go for or against the Colorado decision. And the Colorado decision, you know, I found to be fairly fascinating because you know all this heat got directed at the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State's the defendant in the case. Now, yes, she has explained her, you know, personal views about whether, you know, he should be on the ballot or not. And uh, I think it was also mentioned on the show maybe a couple of episodes ago that there's, you know, concern about what it's going to look like if this ends up being a 6-3 decision based on the way that court is put together. And so I just, yeah, given the fact that right now there's been no conviction on any of the 55 million legal cases <clears throat> that are floating out there now. I'm just concerned about the precedent that it sets for someone who's yet to be convicted. Yeah, you know, I actually feel the same way. <laughs> I've opined on it. I actually was interviewed by uh, a Canadian radio, uh, oddly enough, and they, they said, well, you know, you, you don't like Donald Trump. Why would you not support this? And it goes to the same exact point about you know, Democrats playing in primaries, potentially promoting, you know, the worst of the worst candidates, is there is this end justifies the means mentality in politics today. And I think this is 
along those same lines. This is just the next episode, which is get him off the ballot, you know, whatever it takes. I think that's very dangerous. You can't sit there and talk about how important democracy is and then take someone off the ballot who's right now leading in the polls to be the next president of the United States. I don't care how much you don't like him. I don't either. But this is not the way to go about doing it. It sets a terrible precedent. Um, you know, I'm interested to see, actually, if this ends up being more than a 6-3 you know, decision. Maybe it's a 7-2 or an 8-1. Mm. In Colorado, you know, all seven of our Supreme Court justices here are appointed by Democrats, yet that was a split 4-3 four, four, decision. Three, yeah. And the most scathing, uh, you know, uh, dissents on those, you know, if you look at Justice Samoor's dissent. He said he had never seen something like this in his entire time, you know, in a courtroom. Um, that's th that's alarming. And so I think that you could actually see even more, you know, lopsided decision on this. Uh, maybe not. Who knows? You know, politics nowadays, everything's a surprise. But it will be fascinating to watch. It will, sir, be. Well, and of course, Go Neil Gorsuch, who was appointed Republican on the court, w weighed in in 2012 and said that someone was not eligible to be a candidate for president on Colorado's presidential primary because he didn't fit the constitutional uh, guarantees. Now, he was not accused of being um, inciting an insurrection, and that is, there are two different issues this, the Supreme Court can look at here. Does the president qualify as an officer of the state, which of the United States, which is one of the, one of the disputed provisions mm -hmm. of Section 3 of Amendment 14, and then the other gets into the involvement in an insurrection. And whether I would guess whether or not the Supreme Court goes into both of those, either finding that the Colorado Supreme Court was wrong about either one of them will end it and will will allow him to be on the ballot in Colorado. I somehow just don't see them really taking on the whole insurrection issue. Mm -hmm. But we've got four weeks of excitement ahead. Mm -hmm. Four weeks till the hearing and probably more, hopefully not a whole lot more till the decision in, in terms of hopes and, and say reference this, I think the country would be best served if this is not a 5-4 or even a 6-3 decision. The country, which is, you know, is sort of a tinderbox at the moment, cannot stand another Bush v. Gore kind of decision where all the Republican appointed judges go one way, all the Democratic appointed judges go the other way. I'm hoping that John Roberts, Chief Justice, can use his considerable skills to narrow the decision and make it something that seven or eight or conceivably even nine justices can sign on to. That would serve the country best. My surmise is that Donald Trump is going to be on the ballot. That's what I wrote in uh, recently. Uh, and for all the Democratic hearts that went pitter-patter with the Colorado decision or the Maine Secretary of State decision, I think it is really misplaced. Donald Trump thrives on being the martyr, and every time you put him into the role of martyr, his poll numbers go up. Mm -hmm. His comeback sort of started, if there is a comeback, with the New York indictments. And the more beset upon he is, the stronger he emerges politically. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. Mm -hmm. His momentum is building. It sure is. All right, if you haven't already, I encourage you to read a series in the Denver Post that looks into how Colorado has one of the worst drinking-related death rates in the country. We hear a lot about drug addiction and overdoses, but alcohol is just as deadly. Sage, let's start with you. So, you know, this is obviously a personal issue for me. My, uh, my mother passed away from alcoholism at 44. Mm -hmm. I was 21 years old. 
And uh, my father's now 15 years sober, and he served time in prison. So I had a rough childhood dealing with addiction. Um, this is an issue that is constantly swept under the rug. I can't tell you how many of my mom's friends that I talked to afterwards that said, you know, I knew there was something off, but I just didn't think it was my place to say something. You know, we can talk about policy prescriptions all day long, but at the end of the day, the most powerful thing that can happen for someone who's dealing with addiction issues is having a friend or family member actually try to help them. And constantly, these people end up dying, you know, quietly, or, or they're suddenly admitted to a hospital, and oh my goodness, your liver's in failure, and well, how would we have known? Um, you know, I, I read stories like this, and there's talk about, well, what if we increase the, the tax on alcohol? Or we make it, you know, not as easy to get, you know, so that, you know, different stores can't carry it. That's, you don't understand addiction if that's, your, that's where you first go to. I mean, if somebody is addicted to alcohol, they're not sitting there going, you know, I was going to get another bottle, but the store is a couple miles farther than I wanted. No, that means they're driving a few more miles, possibly intoxicated, to go get it. This needs to be a comprehensive thing about education, um, about having options available for people to actually get help when they need it. Um, and again, it's giving support to family and friends as well, because they can be the biggest support system. So. I'm hopeful that maybe we'll talk about this more because these people are dying just like with drug overdoses, but you know, we'll see if it's just more of the same. I do feel like a lot of people have seen this series and are talking about this now. Patty? Well, I think they've seen the headlines, every, you know, new zombie drug discovered when one person overdoses, or even the fentanyl or the number of overdose drugs. They pale compared to, to the alcohol deaths, not just the deaths of the people who are the alcoholics, who are the addicts, but the people, though, they drive, the drunk drivers who drive into people. We have um, an illegal who killed a mother and child that we're just talking about now. And somehow, even though he had four driving offenses, was deported twice, uh, four times, he still was out on the roads again in Colorado. So we've got so many different issues there. And then you look at, say, Jason Bobert with a 1 a.m. phone call by his son to the Silt police because he was doing shots of tequila and, and abusing his child, allegedly. So there are a lot of issues here, and this has been so obvious, mm -hmm. but we get the headlines about the new sexy drug instead. You're right. Eric. First off, hats off to Sage for sharing his personal story, uh, and I, I sort of feel like anything I can add here in a few seconds is vacuous compared to uh, what, what Sage had to offer. Uh, what, we look at the statistics of how the increase in alcohol deaths, drug deaths as well, and they're rather stunning and shocking and scary increases in Colorado. But behind each one of those stats, they're personal stories, they're personal tragedies. And that's all statistics are in this regard, is an accumulation of personal tragedies. And Sage is absolutely right that policy can only do so much. Ultimately, this needs to be about personal intervention uh, and personal caring, caring enough to intervene. Uh, I flash back and, you know, the homeless problem is only sort of a tangent of this, but in talking to people for a column I wrote, I don't know, a number of months back on homelessness and people in the field, they said what was bothering them and scaring them the most was not just the ramp up of numbers of people in that situation. It was the word they used was acuity. It was the increase in acuity. It was the increasing desperation and the depths that these people were in. And I think that also came through in this Denver Post series. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I do want to co-sign. Thank you for uh, sharing your personal story. And one of the things that I've been paying attention to, especially in light of that Denver Post series, is the expanded access. And I'm not going to, you know, sit here and try and act like I'm some kind of Puritan. I am trying a dry January just for uh, kicks and so far so good with that. But think in terms of the expanded access in Colorado. We went from liquor stores not being open on Sundays. And then we switched over to being able to have full-strength beer in grocery stores, in convenience stores, et cetera, et cetera. And now we have wine available in grocery stores. And like I mentioned on a previous episode that I appeared on, I'm not going to be in a store where they can't even keep the buggies in asking someone what kind of white goes best with the chicken cordon blue. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not trying to be flippant here. But I also, when it comes to the alcohol thing, I think about the disproportionate effects on my community. You know, so, you know, again, not being flippant, but who here at the table knows how to go score a 40 of Old English and malt liquor and the things that are targeted specifically to communities of color with that kind of high octane in it. And so it'll be interesting to see if anything happens in the policy realm because, again, we do have our libertarian governor who considers alcohol use to be a personal choice and a matter of personal responsibility. So over the remaining you know, years of his second term and what happens with the state house, it's going to be interesting to see if there are any policy things. And I agree with both of you gentlemen that there's a human component that overrides the policy part of this and we have to get better as a society with helping people who are struggling and maybe getting outside the realm of political correctness about it or getting outside the realm of not wanting to interfere or not wanting to overstep when you're looking at these types of outcomes. We have to, right? We can't wait for lawmakers to do something. We have to reach out to our friends and family. And it's so hard, too, for some of them to find places to go. So in the meantime, right. we need to be a support, support staff for one another. And w one thing, too, I want to add on is that there is this Venn diagram with a huge amount of overlap, those suffering from mental health issues and those who you know, are struggling with addiction. And alcohol plays right into that as well. So it, it, this is a, a bigger conversation about mental health. It's also a bigger conversation about people just struggling nowadays. Mm -hmm. I mean, paying your bills, you know, making ends meet. Like, these right. things weigh on people, and a lot of times... That bottle is the easiest thing to turn to when, you know, we should probably have other outlets for them to turn to. They should have the friends, the family, the, the community around them. That seems to have diminished in not just Colorado culture, American culture over the last few decades. And we have things like alcohol replacing it. And that's, it's, it's obviously having its effect. Mm -hmm. All right. So read this series in the post if you haven't already and talk with your friends. It is time now for our highs and lows of the week where the panel will go down the line and talk about something. Let's start with something that was negative or disappointed you this week. Well, Patty. another big public issue that often gets swept under the rug, domestic violence. So if anything good can come out of this Bobert incident, it's that people will remember domestic violence is very real. In this case, Jason Bobert claimed that Lauren Bobert had committed domestic violence, had punched him in the nose. Immediately, the Silt police did an investigation. They said, no, that wasn't the case. That's really important. But there's so many other cases where victims, whether male or female, don't go to the police, think they can handle it themselves, and wind up dead. And there was just another case just this week, Hal Hebert. The DA said he was convicted 20 years ago of killing his wife. We've looked over the case. He, he killed her. Mm. Okay. Eric. 
Well, let me go to the person that uh, Lauren Boebert holds to be some kind of godlike figure, and that being Donald Trump. He's back at his usual or his uh, tested antics here of birtherism. Uh, not only, you know, did he make a whole career of questioning Barack Obama's credentials to be president and whether he was born in this country, now he's playing that same card against Nikki Haley or at least retweeting and amplifying others who are playing that card. Nikki Haley was born in this country to parents from India. Whatever you make of Nikki Haley, whatever you make of Donald Trump, Nikki Haley meets the constitutional provision to be president and enough with it already. And mine sort of goes back to just this whole absolute lack of critical thought in our society. And so listening to what we're, we've been talking about as far as things that are going on in the body politic, we truly live in an idiocracy. And that is the most disappointing thing to me. And I'm wondering if we're ever, as just a broader society, going to be able to pull ourselves out of this tailspin that we've been in for about the past eight to 10 years. We have to. We have to rebound. Sage. When you find the person who can answer that question yeah. of when this stops, let me know because yeah, I want to get coffee with them. <laughs> uh, my disappointment of the week, and you know, you, you kind of referenced this when we were talking about the, the, the Trump case, is Jenna Griswold. Um, yes, she's the defendant in that case, but she's also on MSNBC every three days talking about how terrible Trump is and how he shouldn't be on the ballot, regardless of you know, whether she's a plaintiff or defendant or whatever. Um, we are in a time where we have a huge portion of our population that, that does not trust our election system. Mm. I don't agree with them. I think we have safe and secure elections in the state of Colorado. I've never seen a single election down to school board that I think was influenced by fraud or anything like that. And our Republican clerks have been out front at yes. trying to do everything they can to push back against these claims. But Jenna Griswold is not doing us any favors by consistently railing against Donald Trump when she should be playing a fair referee and being somebody that people on both sides can trust to administer our elections. She could do a heck of a lot more reaching across that aisle and trying to rebuild that trust and credibility. I know only to some degree because how politics is, but she's not making that job any easier. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about something positive, Patty. The weekend is going to be full of events commemorating Martin Luther King Jr. And on Monday, the 40th anniversary Marade. So get out there. It'll be cold, but March. Yeah. You're here to that. Um, also, I mean, and particularly as we enter this very cold weekend, just hats off and praise to all of those who are rolling up their sleeves and dealing with this migrant crisis. There's a time and a place to have policy discussions and immigration and border discussions. I don't want to get into that. But for those migrants who are here and everyone led by Mike Johnston, and you can again, we'll have the policy discussion some other time, but who are rolling up their sleeves and opening their hearts and in some cases opening wallets and all the rest to deal with this human influx, uh, praise to them. Mm -hmm. And mine's personal. I am an assistant uh, high school basketball coach at Far Northeast, and we are off to a very rough start. But I want to give a shout out to the kids because of the way they're still grinding and trying. And this is not an exaggeration. Again, I'm talking varsity level basketball. Everyone sitting at this table is taller than a third of my roster. Mm. <laughs> oh, wish them well. It's the wind's right around the corner. There you go. Stage. Uh, you know, for me, I think uh, my best thing I saw this week was Chris Christie bowing out of the race. I think he played in an interesting role in the Republican primary, being somebody who was willing to take on Donald Trump. I think that was very necessary. 
Um, but as we get down to the wire, I think that he's doing the math. He's looking at how things are and saying, like, I have to get out of the way if I don't want Trump to be the nominee. And so, you know, I, he could have gone all the way, and he said he was going to take it all the way to the convention and, and kind of be the rebel rouser uh, the whole way. You know, I, I got to give him kudos for jumping in and, and playing his part. I think he knew he didn't have a chance at the nomination and for, I think, bowing out when it was necessary. And he bowed out the same day all those football coaches went away. Right. <laughs> it was a weird day, wasn't it? All right, for me, my positive is a brand new documentary that is eye-opening and which I believe will be a catalyst for some positive change in the foster care system in Colorado. Colorado Inside Out executive producer Rachel Fahar is the director of Rebecoming Me, which tells the stories of five adults who grew up in foster care. I highly recommend Rebecoming Me. It is just 30 minutes. Uh, PBS will be airing the documentary several times over the next couple of uh, weeks, and it will also be streamed on PBS 12 platforms after it premieres this coming Wednesday. I urge you to check it out. These stories are compelling, and they really raise some questions, and uh, hopefully there will be some change. Thank you, panelists, for joining us this week. Thank you for watching at home or listening to our podcast. I am Kyle Dyer. I will see you next week here on PBS 12.